Is the Japanese government intent on dumping water irradiated by the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster into the ocean? Is the nuclear industry getting away with murder? Are the small modular nuclear reactors pursued by Canada an acceptable solution for dealing with climate change? Why does the Canadian government want new reactors at a time when demand in other areas is dropping? This week on the Global Research News Hour, following the 10th anniversary of the destruction of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactors, we focus our attention on nuclear power in Canada as it is anticipated as part of a solution to fighting greenhouse gas emissions. In our first half hour, we hear from environmental journalist Robert Hunziker about Fukushima 10 years later and the role of the various authorities to conceal the output of the disaster. Then in our last half hour, we hear a podcast from CFUV's Chris Cook with Professor M. V. Ramana about his reservations to embracing the SMR platform announced by the government as part of the government's climate action plan. On this week's program, 10 years after Fukushima, Canada still embraces the atom, the debut of the small moderate reactors. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 30th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis in the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Let's make no mistake, we are already in WW3. A more noble term is the Great Reset. The World Economic Forum's, or WEF, eloquent description of a devastated worldwide economy, countless bankruptcies and unemployment, abject misery, famine, death by starvation, disease, and suicide. Hundreds of millions of people have already been affected by this collateral damage of the COVID-19 fear propaganda biowar, with a death toll maybe already in the tens of millions, but which in reality cannot even be assessed at this time. And this only one year into this criminal madness, a diabolical elite of multi-multi-billionaires has pushed upon us, we the people. We are only in the first year of the war, which by the reset's plan is to last the entire decade 2020 to 2030. That comes from the article, The WEF's Great Reset, Euphemism for a WW3 Scenario, by Peter Koenig, posted April 27th. The test does not need to be ordered by a doctor. It is possible that the patient's doctor does not even know their patient was tested, nor will they receive the results. In most cases, there will be no billing of an insurance company. The results are determined within the facility and the only required reporting is to a local health 
Authority, which forwards results to the CDC. Like the COVID vaccinations, these COVID tests are being handled completely outside the regular healthcare system. That comes from the article, America's Testing Mess, the Healthcare System in COVID Testing and Vaccinations, by Dr. Merrill Nass, posted April 27th, originally published on Merrill Nass's blog. A corporate-funded COVID commission planning group is being set up to create and support an investigative commission like that for 9-11. This is a classic illustration of the fox guarding the hen house. The planning group is led by Philip Zelikow, former executive director of the 9-11 Commission and a member of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Global Development Program Advisory Panel. Zelico is also a strategy group member of the Aspen Institute, a technocratic hub that has groomed and mentored executives from around the world about the subtleties of globalization. The COVID Commission Planning Group includes more than two dozen virologists, public health personas, and former government officials, and is backed by four charitable foundations, all of whom have histories revealing them to be part of the technocratic alliance that for years have been plotting and planning for the wealth redistribution and global power grab we're now experiencing. That comes from the article, Coming COVID Commission is a Gates-led cover-up, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted April 27th, originally published on the Mercola website. The overwhelming psychological power of revenge in Your Honor is demonstrated by the fact that the narrative centers around a judge, an important representative of the modern justice system. It shows why it is so important to gain general acceptance of a system of punishment that deters others from committing crimes while at the same time preventing criminals from repeating their crimes. In this way, justice acts like a controlling carbon rod in the potential fission of escalating cycles of revenge. We live in a time when disillusionment with the justice system, short sentences, crimes committed on bail, clever lawyers getting offenders off, etc., is amplified in the popular press, making the justice system appear to be a lot less ineffectual than it actually is. However, Your Honor, with its relentlessly depressing atmosphere and its narrative of desperate actions and reactions, gives us some inkling of what societies would be like if that was the norm rather than the exception, and when Your Honor is more important and sacred than life itself. That comes from the article, Your Honor, Justice in a Time of Collapse, by Kivin Okrion, posted April 27th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. now to a review of the ongoing efforts to cope with the ever never-ending tragedy of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, which underwent multiple meltdowns after the electrical generator once immersed in a large tidal wave 
following an earthquake failed to cool it down. Water must be sprayed on it continuously to keep cool a radioactive core that continues to heat itself. Debris launched from it is suspected in rises of thyroid cancer, not just in Japan, but as far away as California. The 10th anniversary of the disaster has come and gone. To get a bit of an update, we got hold of Robert Hunziger. Robert Hunziger is a freelance writer and environmental journalist whose articles have been translated into foreign languages and appear in over 50 journals, magazines, and sites worldwide. He's made multiple appearances in electronic media to talk about global climate change as well as the aftermath of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Robert Hunziger joins us now from Los Angeles. A pleasure to have you on the show, Robert. Hi, Michael. Great. Thanks so much for having me. This is such an important topic. And, you know, I've been following um, and I've written about the Fukushima disaster almost from day one, I think maybe 20, 25 articles over the last number of years. Um, and as you mentioned, you had three total uh, nuclear core meltdowns. Uh, that's called a Code 7 uh, in terms of the international nuclear scale, which is bad as it gets, as bad as it gets. I mean, you know, this is, a, uh, you know, uh, the worst industrial accidents in the history of humankind are Fukushima and Chernobyl. And uh, the reason they're the worst is they never stop. Uh, Chernobyl, they have put a sarcophagus over it, a gigantic metal one that maybe will last for 100 years, but that's going to be highly radioactive for 20,000 years. And the damage that it's caused to lives and people's health is only starting to surface over the last couple of decades because it takes a while when you get the radiate, when you, you're exposed to radiation to these radionuclides. It takes a while for it to work through your body and cause cancer and cause death and all these things. Before we finish, if we have the time, I'd like to talk a little bit about how the nuclear industry gets away with murder. Okay, so um, the, if you were to go to Wikipedia and if you were to put in Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster at w Wikipedia, what they will do is they will say there's one confirmed cancer death attributed to radiation exposure at Fukushima. And they'll say there are two workers who are hospitalized because of radiation burns. That's a lie. That's a lie. It's not true. Not even close to being true. And we'll, we'll circle back and we'll talk about that as well. So now my article uh, that was published in in several different locations. Yeah, uh, it was called, if, if Fukushima's water is safe, then drink it. And you referred to a story where <laughs> the prime minister claims the water being held in huge reservoirs once diluted and, and treated is safe to drink and, and therefore good for dumping in, into the ocean next year. It seems like a pretty incredible statement. Are there not rational concerns regarding the impact that the, the water could have on the ocean? Or, or is it the ocean indeed huge enough to conceal the pollution? Well, absolutely, there are rational uh, reasons for pause and concern. Absolutely, there are. Uh, you know, the contaminated water has 62 different radionuclides in it uh, that are highly toxic, the most toxic stuff on the planet. You know, uh, cesium-139, strontium-90, 
uh, and tritium. Now, tritium is the one that remains after they process the water and cleanse the water. And what they've done is um, they have to continue to pour water over these <laughs> melted down coriums. Otherwise, you would have to essentially end up evacuating all of Tokyo if you didn't. That's what the end result would be if you didn't continue to put water on this hot stuff that has melted down. So then you get radioactive water. They're putting it into all these storage facilities. They're running out of room. So what the US, United States, the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, and the government of Japan, those three parties have made the decision that since they're running out of storage space for this radioactive water, oh, we'll just dump it into the ocean starting in the year 2022. Now, uh, <laughs> the rest of the world is not in agreement on this, by the way. Uh, the deputy prime minister of Japan, a gentleman by the name of Aso, made public statement in response to the foreign ministry of China who said, you can't use the Pacific Ocean as your trash can, okay? We don't agree. <laughs> The deputy prime minister of Japan replied and said, it's safe, you can drink it. The United States, in concert with the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, which is really just the water boy for the nuclear industry, by the way, it, you know, it's their own private lobbying group is what it really is. It doesn't really monitor things like they say they do. And the government of Japan, those three agencies said, oh, it's harmless, it's okay. So. With a little bit of tongue in cheek, I started to look into this. And I said, well, now, wait a minute. If they're saying it's safe to drink, then they should keep it in Japan. So in my article, what I did is I researched where they have water reservoirs in Japan. They have 100,000 dams in Japan, of which 3,000 have, have at least, or they're at least 50 feet tall. So they have large water reserves behind them. And one of the largest, by the way, is called Oguchi Reservoir, which is, uh, holds all the drinking water for Tokyo. So my suggestion was, well, maybe you could take a quarter or even a half of this radioactive water, because it's still gonna be radioactive even after they process it with what's called tritium. We'll talk about tritium in a minute. Uh, because, and then put it into these, these water reservoirs you got. You said it's safe to drink yourselves. You said it's safe. Obviously, that's probably not going to go anywhere, but that was the intent of my article. Now, when they process the water and take out most of the radioactive uh, isotopes that are dangerous, like cesium-137, for example, it does leave tritium because that's hydrogen isotopes, and you can't really remove it from water. But it's the same. Tritium is the same as all radioactive substances. It's a carcinogen which causes cancer. It's also, it's three things. It's a mutagen as well, which causes genetic mutation. It's also what's called a teratogen, which is causes malformation of an embryo. So it may be the weakest of the various uh, isotopes. In other words, you can't, it cannot penetrate your skin. But because of the low energy cycle it has, if you ingest it or inhale it, it can have the same impact as any other radioactive substance. As a matter of fact, there's some research out there now 
that says that the lower, what they call density of ionization of the lower volume kind of electron that comes from tritium can cause cancer more so than the more powerful ones. So the end result, scientists say, is that any radiation exposure increases the risk of cancer. Now, there are several parties out there that have said, hey, wait a minute, put the brakes on here. Greenpeace in Japan has been there monitoring what's happening for a decade now at Fukushima. And they have warned more than once about the ineffectiveness of the advanced liquid processing system that, that, that TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company uses to supposedly strip out the radioactive ingredients more than once. In fact, at one point in time, TEPCO even had to admit they had way excessive levels of uh, cesium-137, highly toxic. So are those now removed? We don't really know. Do we trust them? We don't because we know they lie about a lot of things, which I'm going to get into in a minute, as does their government. There's so a very good article, by the way. So just a second, I mean, by the like there's, there's basically... You're, there's no way to, to dilute tritium, uh, as far as anybody knows. Is that? No, not. not. at all. And they say that this is okay. You're, you're going to put a, a, a cancer-causing uh, radioactive isotope into the water, right? And they're telling their own people in the world that it's safe to do and that you can drink it. Well, I'm just wondering, I mean, just say that, uh, I mean, as you pointed out, they're running out of space to put all this, the, the water, I mean, with all of these, you know, thousands of, of, of receptacles uh, that, that, that are filling up. I mean, I'm wondering, is, is this an attempt by the government, by the three agencies to, to put a positive spin on what they see as an inevitable outcome? You know, I mean, one way or the other, it's going to go into the oceans. So. No, it's not. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. No, it doesn't have to. They can put it into their own water reservoirs they've got inland. They've got 3,000 of them with 50-foot dams. They can put it into their own. It doesn't have to go and be exposed to the international community. Once it goes into the ocean, it's exposed to the entire distance first throughout the whole world. The rest of the world doesn't want it. They don't want it. Okay? So it's their problem. They're the ones that built a seawall that for years they were criticized, wasn't high enough if they had a tsunami. They're the ones that built the facility that had their extra generators in the basement where if you got flooding, they would flood them out and cause a meltdown. They're the ones that did a lot of stupid things when they built the plant. The rest of the world didn't. The rest of the world doesn't want to hear about that. They have to take care of it themselves. Now, I want to talk for a minute about how the nuclear industry gets away with murder. Yeah, because I mean, they, they you guess J Japanese government, TEPCO and the IAEA, uh, they've got a, a notorious record of hiding and embellishing nuclear incidents, uh, which could jeopardize the reputation of the industry. I mean, what do you think are some of the more notorious incidents of this kind of subterfuge? Well, okay, so let's look at how you eliminate transparency in three easy steps, and this is what they did in Japan when they had this nuclear uh, 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 breakdown or meltdown. Um, the first step was in 2013, they passed a government secrecy act. And it's called the Act on the Protection of Specially Designated Secrets. It's act number 108. And what it says is this, any leaked secrets 
in the country of Japan is subject to 10 years in prison. And a leaked secret is defined by the party who prosecutes. So it could be anything. Secondly, any instigator of a leaked secret, like a journalist, is subject to five years in prison. So what happened then in 2014, one year later, is that Japan dropped below both Serbia and Botswana in the World Press Freedom Index. They're at the very bottom now because of that secrecy law, that totalitarian secrecy law they passed. The second thing they did, remember I said there are three things, three steps, is they passed a, cancel, a, 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 a cancer registration law was enacted. And here's what that law says. It's illegal to share medical data on radiation issues in Japan. Five to 10 years prison if you share it. Second part of this law is they deny public access to any medical records. Five to 10 years if you violate that. So there's the first two steps to removing transparency. Here's the third one. The third one was they, 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 in, in 2014, they had a massive confidentiality agreement that was agreed to by four parties. One of them was the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, which is letting the fox into the hen house. We already know that one. The second one is what's called UNSCLEAR. And that means the UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. Then they had, the third one was the Fukushima Prefecture, which is that governmental region where this happened. And the final one was the Fukushima Medical University. And here's what they agreed to, those four parties. All radiation illnesses had to be reported to, have to be reported to a central repository that is run by the Fukushima Medical Center and guess who else? The International Atomic Energy Agency. Okay, so here we got the fox in the hen house who's gonna take care of any reports. So what they also did is they created a new agency that's going to communicate accurate information to the public about any kind of radiation issues. So far, here's what they've said. We have one death in China, in, in, in Japan, as a result of a radiation death. We have one. That's what's out in the public domain. That's a lie. Let me tell you why it's a lie. Um, first off, let's look at how TEPCO reports deaths from radiation exposure. And let's look at how they hire their workers because they've probably hired 20 or 30,000 workers as cleanup workers over the last 10 years. They don't hire workers, they hire subcontractors. They have 733 subcontractors and each subcontractor will use another subcontractor who in turn will hire a labor broker to hire cleanup workers. Net result is there's no, nobody has any insurance, nobody has anything and they don't report to anybody. It's not reported because of the stream of the way they hire. TEPCO doesn't have a responsibility to hire, to respond to a worker's death that comes from a subcontractor. That's how they get around it. Now, the mayor of Fataba, which is a, a community in Fukushima prefecture, uh, made the following statement to RN News in April, 2014. His name is Katsuka Itogata, Itogano. Here's a quote. It's a real shame that the authorities hype the truth from the whole world, from the UN. We need to admit that actually many people are dying. We're not allowed to say that. 
But TEPCO employees are also dying, but they keep mum about it. Here's what a former TEPCO nurse told Mako Oshidori, who is with the Free Press Corporation in Japan, who's an independent journalist. And she spoke uh, in Germany at the International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War Convention in 2014. That nurse, former nurse at TEPCO, told Mako that there have been multiple worker deaths, but they're not reported at TEPCO. Here's another independent journalist report that came out in 2016. Her name is Mari Yamaguchi. She's with J Japan AP News. She said that the ashes of a half dozen unidentified laborers from TEPCO were left at a Buddhist temple that's north of the Fukushima plant. No papers, no, no names con uh, confirmed. They were labeled decontamination troopers. Greenpeace in Japan, a year and a half ago, had an article where they said, the Japanese government is misleading the UN on the impact of Fukushima fallout, nuclear fallout, radiation on children and on their decontamination workers. So they're getting away with murder. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's very clear with people who are willing to take on the issue and explore it, what really is happening there. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering, I mean, because we, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I mean, could you talk a little bit about the, 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 the agency's uh, ability to uh, conceal the, the, the death count? I mean, not just in Japan, but worldwide. Well, yes, uh, very quickly. Let me just say this about Chernobyl, which happened in 1986. Okay. There was a BBC special report that came out uh, in 2019. Uh, and according to the UN, 50 deaths directly attributed to Chernobyl because of radiation. The official count from the IAEA is 31 deaths, right? The BBC special report in 2019, the title of it was The True Toll of the Chernobyl Disaster. The Russian Academy of Sciences told them 112 to 125,000 deaths from radiation. This was by 20, 2005 not 30 or 50, over 100,000. The Ukrainian death count was approximately 12,000 cleanup workers. The Belarus death count, approximately 1,700 cleanup workers, not 30 or 50. Um, and that Belarus also said that by 2008, they had over 40,000 cleanup workers had reported cancer by 2008. Um, I'll give you a quote from Victor Shishiko, who is a deputy director general of the National Research Center for Radiation Medicine in Kiev, Ukraine. Quote, Chernobyl is the largest anthropogenic disaster in the history of humankind. Then USA Today in 2016 had an article about the Chernobyl legacy and the kids with bodies that have been ravaged by disaster. They said the following, this is the USA Today, 2016. The Ukrainian health ministry has over 2 million, 2.3 million people who are on Chernobyl-related health care, 2.3 million, of which 453 million are children who were not born in 1986 when Chernobyl melted down. Their parents were children then. 
So what happened here is Chernobyl altered their genes before they were born. These children have all kinds of illnesses, respiratory, digestive, muscular, skeletal, eye diseases, blood diseases, cancer, congenital malformations, and genetic abnormalities. And a lot of them, a lot of these children who are not, who are deformed, are in the backwoods in the countryside in Belarus in orphanages. And there's a group of women out of Ireland that have been going into these orphanages to try and help these kids. And there's some interesting articles out there about what they've seen with these children who are deformed because of Chernobyl before they were born. End of story. Yeah. <laughs> it's already well, bad, re- isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I really want to. Th- I think thank you for that uh, that update and uh, maybe a reminder of uh, you know how all of the, you, you don't just necessarily take you know what's written uh, on face value. I mean, really got to investigate it further. Thanks for that brief update, uh, Robert, and and we appreciate your attempts to keep on top of it. Hey, great, Michael. I'm so pleased you're doing this. Wonderful. Thank you. We were speaking with uh, Robert Hunziger. He's a freelance writer and environmental journalist based in Los Angeles. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We now go to the interview carried out by Chris Cook, host and producer of Guerrilla Radio on radio station CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, operating on the unceded, unsurrendered territories of the Wissanik and Lekwungen peoples. Well, last November, Minister of Natural Resources Seamus O'Regan announced the federal government's action plan for small modular reactors. The minister says in a time of climate change, he sees no way to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 without nuclear power. Well, while that's a hotly debated opinion, no one doubts the downside effects of atomic power, cost, pollution, and the dangers of reactor meltdowns as seen in Chernobyl and Fukushima. Professor M.V. Ramana serves as the Simons Chair in Disarmament, Global, and Human Security. He is, too, Director of the Liu Institute for Global Issues at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at UBC. His recent article, Why the Liberals' Nuclear Power Plan is a pipe dream warns small does not make modular reactors less nuclear. Today, MV Ramana and nipping Canada's nuclear reactor renaissance in the bud. Welcome to the program, Professor. Thank you, Chris. I'm pleased to be here. Well, it's my great pleasure to have you. Of course, now, uh, Ramana, in your article, you write the Liberals' government uh, claims that small nuclear reactors will help mitigate climate change is simply, quote, barking up the wrong tree. How are they getting it wrong? So we know a lot about nuclear power, and there are two elements of that, which I think are uh, three elements of that, which are crucial for this. The first is that nuclear power takes a long time to construct. A reactor takes of the order of about a decade to build. And when you're talking about designs which have not even been uh, tested so far, which have not been licensed, you're talking about small modular reactors being built sometime in the 2035 to 2040 period, even under an optimistic uh, outlook. And so that's far too late to deal with the climate crisis. I think we should be acting now and we should be acting fast now. 
The second thing which we know about nuclear energy is that it is expensive, right? The uh, average reactor that is being built uh, costs several thousand uh, dollars per megawatt uh, of, uh, per kilowatt of capacity of the order of $10,000 per kilowatt or more. And that's much more expensive than the other low carbon alternatives, namely solar and wind that have become much cheaper over the last decade. Uh, and the third thing, which is they're getting wrong with this whole issue, is that the economic disadvantage of nuclear power becomes worse when you go to small reactors. And the reason for that somewhat counterintuitive effect is that the only way nuclear energy has managed to try to compete economically on the electricity market is by building large and trying to take advantage of what are called economies of scale. The idea is that when you build a reactor that can generate 10 times as much electricity as a small reactor, you're not necessarily, you don't require 10 times as much concrete or 10 times as many workers to operate that plant. And therefore, even though your revenues from the sale of electricity will go up by a factor of 10, your costs do not uh, scale up in the same way. The uh, small modular reactors are going uh, in the opposite direction. And they are trying to go small because they think the overall cost might be less. But what they are forgetting is that the amount of power that you'll be generating for the same cost will be even smaller by a uh, smaller fraction of what you'll be generating. And therefore, the per unit cost actually is going to go up. And there is no way that SMRs are going to be able to compete with renewables, which, as I mentioned earlier, are becoming cheaper all the time and are present and ready to be deployed right now. Well, these SMRs are small modular reactors. Now, they're still in the development phase. How do they differ from or do they from the small reactors we find, say, on uh, Russian icebreakers or nuclear powered submarines or aircraft carriers? They are different in two ways. The first is that the um, uh, icebreakers and nuclear submarines and so on, uh, the reactors there are not designed primarily to generate electricity. They are designed to do propulsion in the water. And therefore, uh, and also uh, submarines in particular have to do a lot of maneuvers to try and avoid uh, enemy submarines and uh, be involved in warfare when they may have to accelerate very quickly or stop very quickly. And the reactors which are uh, designed to do that kind of uh, power generation are going to be operating very differently from a nuclear power plant. So they have, if you wanted to try and use one of those reactors for uh, electricity generation, you'd be paying far more than you'd be paying for even regular nuclear power because the kind of fuel elements you'll be using will be very special. The second way in which I think uh, uh, we would not be trying to use submarine reactors and why current day SMRs, at least the proposed ones, are different is that today's SMRs would likely take advantage of advances in manufacturing uh, that have uh, been experience in a multiple industries compared to what was done in the 1960s and 70s when the submarine reactors were designed. In your article, you've got a terrific quote about the cost factor of nuclear generally, and, and that comes from Peter Bradford down at the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Bradford says to use nuclear power to mitigate climate change is like trying to fight world hunger with caviar. Yes, uh, Peter is uh, Peter Bradford is a retired U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, commissioner, and he gets it exactly right. 
you know, we do not need an all of the above strategy. What we need are uh, strategies that can actually afford to do this at the most economical possible way. The fact is that Minister Reagan is actually wrong when he says uh, there is no pathway to net zero without nuclear power. There are several studies around the world which show that you could, in principle, uh, meet uh, the world's energy demands with renewables uh, by scaling them up and backing them up with some combination of uh, demand response, of uh, uh, storage through batteries, and by increased uh, geographical connectivity so that uh, you can take advantage of uh, availability of wind and solar in other parts of the country when a particular part of the country is not feeling that. So there are many, many studies that show that. And, uh, and they also show that uh, renewables are the cheapest way forward at this point. Now, there is a legitimate debate to be had about whether in the ultimate uh, instance, when you're going to, uh, if you can you actually do everything with 100% renewables and what kind of assumptions are involved. But I think there's also a legitimate answer to that debate, which is that currently there is absolutely no case for building up nuclear. Maybe when you get to 80% renewables or 90% renewables, maybe we might have to think about something like nuclear. But I don't think we have, there's any justification for building up nuclear at this point. Well, the terrestrial energy and uh, SNC Lavalan and Seattle's ultra-safe nuclear corporation would probably argue with you on that point. But if it's not for climate change, then what's Minister O'Regan, what's his second uh, reason for wanting to devote the hundreds or of millions and maybe billions of taxpayer dollars to this project? So the other argument uh, uh, the SMR uh, advocates are using is the idea that we will need uh, small modular reactors to try and supply electricity to uh, remote mines and communities. And the argument there is that currently many of them use uh, diesel to uh, meet their energy needs. And diesel has to be shipped from uh, far distances. Uh, some of these areas are not accessible throughout the year. So this diesel has to be stored for uh, the whole period. And this becomes very expensive. And so many of these remote communities and mines are paying a lot of money for their electricity. And the hope for the SMR vendors is that maybe in that niche market, uh, you would find that SMRs might be able to compete economically uh, with the alternative, which is diesel at this point. Uh, there are two things which are wrong with that. Um, my colleagues and I did a lot of research to look at what is the size of this market. And we found that even under the most optimistic assumptions, which is that every possible mine and community that requires electricity right now, which is not connected to the grid right now, goes ahead and buys a small modular reactor. And you can imagine that's an ultra optimistic assumption from the viewpoint of uh, SMR uh, advocates. And what we found was that even then, the total size of the market is only a few hundred megawatts, 600 megawatts, roughly speaking. And 600 megawatts is not even enough to justify building a factory to produce the parts that are required to assemble the SMRs in these locations, right? You will not even be able to recoup the cost of building the factory, even if you were to sell all these places uh, to all these sites. The second thing which we found was that even if they were to build these uh, SMRs, the cost of electricity from that uh, source would be about 10 times the cost of generating electricity from diesel. 
And the most economic way today to be able to reduce the cost of uh, diesel-based energy for these systems would be to supplement that with renewables. So looking at the particular site, you may have some combination of wind or solar or hydro and try to reduce the amount of diesel usage. And eventually as uh, technology improves for renewables, it may be possible to go 100% renewable even in these places. But there is absolutely no case to be building SMRs in these places. And lastly, I'll also say one more thing, which is not often talked about, which is that uh, this particular, these uh, remote communities and uh, mines are being used as guinea pigs for a technology that has never been tested at scale anywhere. And there is uh, a, an ethical problem there, given that these are such small, such remote locations that in the event that there is going to be an accident or something, it will be very difficult to try and manage the accident. We all saw what happened in Fukushima when uh, nearly 160,000 people had to be evacuated very quickly from the areas around Fukushima. How are we going to be able to do this kind of evacuation in these remote areas is a question that nobody is talking about. And do, do these small communities, and when we talk about small communities in this country, Canada, we're usually talking about native communities. Have they shown any interest in these communities for these small uh, nuclear reactors? On the contrary, they've shown a lot of opposition to this. Uh, the, every statement that you see from many of these First Nations communities is that they don't want to be uh, the site of building SMRs and another round of nuclear construction. The uh, First Nations communities have already paid a high price for uh, the nuclear age through those communities that have been exposed to radioactive uh, waste materials from uranium mining in this country and uranium processing. Yeah, and we remember, uh, well, some of our older listeners may re recall the Russian satellite that uh, had a nuclear reactor on board that crashed in the Canadian north, well, I guess it was in the 1980s, I'm, I'm reaching back here in my memory, but the cleanup prospect for that, the, the Russians at the time, the Soviet Union then, uh, they didn't pick up the cost of in Canada had to at, at great uh, cost. You know, thinking about the Russians, too, there was the case of the Kursk uh, nuclear powered submarine that sank uh, in, in the year 2000. I found something interesting when you talk about the difficulty, if there should be a problem with these remote communities. Well, of course, if something is sunk on the bottom of the ocean, that presents some uh, mm -hmm. difficulty, too. And the, when they mounted the recovery of the Kursk, the Russian Federation, they had to go outside to commercial interest because, and in the report it says, that they, had, they did not possess the resources and expertise to do this. And moreover, it had never planned to do so. Is the government uh, making these contingency plans, uh, these worst case plans that you're aware of? Should one of these remote location uh, plants... Uh, encounter some problem through what forest fire or flood or just a regular uh, equipment malfunction uh, certainly not and i think it's actually worse i will uh, try and explain a lot of the hype about smrs uh, comes from the fact that they are considered to be safer and uh, there is some truth to the idea that when you have a smaller reactor the consequences of an act accident could be much smaller because the amount of radioactive material inside the reactor is, is lower. But this argument then is used to try and relax uh, nuclear safety regulations around the world. Uh, 
so in many countries, there is an effort to say that should we deploy SMRs, then the so-called emergency planning zones, this is the area around a nuclear power plant site, the nearby townships and municipalities have to be trained, have to be uh, doing regular drills uh, about actions to be taken in the event of an accident. And this costs a certain amount of money, and there also will lead to communities becoming concerned. So nuclear developers have been against this kind of planning for a long time. And so what they have been trying to say is, oh, this new generation of reactors is so safe, we don't have to do this at all. We can save money from not having to carry out these drills. And uh, so please change your regulations so that these reactors are exempt from that. And uh, that push is certainly happening in Canada too. And unfortunately, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission appears to be willing to consider that kind of scenario. And therefore, I don't believe they are doing any kind of contingency planning for these remote communities. What they will probably say is that we have evaluated the safety of these uh, designs and they are so safe that we, this is not a uh, likely uh, event. But what we should learn from all of the previous accidents is that none of them were initially conceived of, just as you mentioned in the case of the Kursk, right? Uh, nobody uh, had ever thought, I mean, at least from the official side, had expected what happened at Fukushima or what happened in Chernobyl. It is always sort of beyond the imagination of the officials. It does not mean that other people around the world had not thought about it, but those their voices were never taken into consideration. And I think that's what's going happening with the case of SMRs as well. Yeah, well, those those duck and cover exercises are, are not a great sales point. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Professor M. V. Ramana. He serves as the Simons Chair in Disarmament, Global and Human Security. He is two director of the Lew Institute for Global Issues at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at UBC. We're talking today about his article, Why the Liberals' Nuclear Power Plan is a Pipe Dream. Let's pretend, uh, Professor, that everything goes right and that uh, there is no problems uh, as these uh, uh, the manufacturers of these small modular reactors envision. What about the waste now? Uh, even in a perfect scenario, you're going to have downstream waste coming out of these. Should I feel comforted that because it's a small reactor, it's like owning a small dog and what comes out the back end of it isn't going to be as onerous? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, the, there's a difference between a dog and a, a nuclear power plant uh, in that the size of the dog does not necessarily correlate with the amount of joy you get out of it. I have a small dog myself, uh, and it gives me as much joy as a large uh, dog might give to a large dog's owner. However, a nuclear power plant doesn't operate the same way. A small nuclear power plant will generate only a small amount of electricity. So the right way to think about it is, Will I be generating the same amount of waste or more waste or less waste compared to another nuclear power plant, which is a larger nuclear power plant, uh, for the same amount of electricity generated or per unit of electricity generated? And on that count, uh, smaller reactors could fare worse. In other words, all else being equal, 
a small nuclear reactor would likely generate more waste per unit of electricity generated than a large nuclear reactor. And the reason is that a smaller plant, the reason why it can be considered safer is that more of the uh, I'm sort of getting a little bit technical, but I'll just say it anyway for those people who might be able to follow it, which is that in a nuclear reactor, there are neutrons that are being generated all the time inside the core of the reactor. And in a smaller reactor, uh, more of those neutrons will escape out of the reactor, which means that they are not going to be hitting other uh, radioactive materials and converting them into waste products and radioactive materials. And uh, there are also various other operational reasons why uh, small modular reactors will uh, generate more uh, amount of um, nuclear waste per unit of electricity generated in comparison with a large plot. And so that's one thing to sort of remember. The second thing to remember is that it's a little bit also like the analogy that you mentioned about the small dog and the large dog. Uh, once the uh, waste is generated, you have to deal with it, right? Just as I have to, you know, bag this and go and find a particular receptacle to throw my dog's poop. Uh, the, in this particular case, we unfortunately don't have those kinds of receptacles. There has been no demonstrated way to deal with uh, commercial nuclear waste anywhere in the world. There is no operating repository, even though people have been talking about geological repositories since the 1950s. And this is a, because of a combination of both technical and social reasons. The technical reason is that the radioactive waste stays radioactive and hazardous to human beings for hundreds of thousands of years. And no kind of repository can be guaranteed for that kind of period of time. So sometime in the future, there will be uh, escape of radioactive materials from these repositories into the water bodies around it and so on. It's not a question of if, but when. And uh, the second uh, issue is that people don't want to actually have these kinds of repositories, not just in their background. It's not a NIMBY phenomenon. It's actually in nobody's back a backyard phenomenon that people think that this is not an ethical um, legacy to be left behind for uh, our uh, descendants far into the future who are not going to benefit from the electricity, uh, but are going to have to deal with uh, the radioactive pollution that will come out of this. Well, this industry, as it stands right now, the large or, or regular-sized atomic power generation industry is 60, 70 years along now. What we're seeing is in the United States and in Canada, and I expect other places too, the first generations of these plants are, are getting past their best before date. Is there some element here that the nuclear infrastructure uh, in this country is trying to find a way to step into the breach when these old uh, reactors must be shut down? I spoke with uh, Carl Grossman a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about in the States, and, and presumably it'll be happening and is happening in Canada too, These the lifespan of the original reactors are being continually stretched and pushed further and further into the future because they're not really sure what to do once they shut these plants down. Absolutely. So SMRs are hoping to do that, but I think they are. Um, that is not a, an immediate market, even though the SMR vendors would pretend that it is. Uh, and the reason for that is the existing nuclear industry and SNC Lavalin that you mentioned is a very important player in that is already getting billions of dollars for refurbishing all these old plants, in particular in uh, the Bruce nuclear power plant and Darlington. Uh, in Ontario. Uh, so they already have plenty of money and uh, uh, 
tracks to sort of get by at this point. And so they are not necessarily the uh, first places that might be deploying SMRs. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the real hope for the SMR industry is that they will build in one of these remote communities where they can claim that it is going to help them deal with the problems of relying on diesel for energy generation. That said, uh, you're definitely right that, you know, these uh, large nuclear power plants have to be retired at some point. And if you wanted to have a certain share of nuclear energy uh, in the electricity uh, sector, then you will have to think about building uh, something to replace that. Now, there are two issues there. One is that although SMRs are like the flavor of the month at this point, they will, you know, if you were to say, uh, make a, a sort of an executive decision, as it were, a government level decision to say, we are going to have a certain share of electricity in our uh, electricity, I mean, uh, nuclear energy in our electricity generation, then it actually makes more sense to build a large reactor than a small reactor, right? Uh, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier about economies of scale and so on. The second is that there is no reason why nuclear energy has to be maintaining that share. If you look at global markets, uh, the share of electricity around the world that is being supplied by nuclear power has been declining continuously since the mid-1990s. The highest it ever was was 17.5% in 1996, and it's now just around 10% at this point. And all projections for the future look at nuclear power actually declining. Uh, even the most optimistic projections see nuclear power at best maintaining market share and staying at around 10%. So um, there's no reason why, you know, this, it's not like a law of uh, nature that nuclear energy has to be uh, serving a certain fraction of Canada's um, electricity requirements. And the economic uh, argument, if you want to look at it, is uh, to build up renewables at this point to replace any old uh, nuclear power plants. And this is something which, again, has been done in many countries. We've seen the case of Germany, which is phasing out nuclear power and has built up solar and wind and offshore wind and biomass very rapidly in the last decade or so, uh, so that its overall emissions have declined quite dramatically in the last uh, two decades uh, since they decided on the nuclear phase out. Closer home, in the case of the United States, uh, California is retiring its last two nuclear reactors, uh, which are in Diablo Canyon. And uh, the uh, utility that is in charge of Diablo Canyon, uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, is has promised to replace it with a mixture of uh, renewables and energy efficiency. And by all uh, counts, they seem to be proceeding smoothly towards that. So I think it is definitely possible. And I have myself done some modeling uh, of the Ontario power grid in Ontario because Ontario is the uh, province which has 18 of the 19 nuclear plants in Canada and shown that in going forward, uh, it is definitely more economical to try and meet all of Ontario's energy needs, electricity needs, using some combination of wind, solar, and hydro, and uh, storage. So there are a number of reasons why I think uh, the idea that you have to maintain nuclear power at its current share is wrong, uh, and uh, you know there's no need to replace these large nuclear plants with small nuclear plants. Just the students will tell you there's not a lot of uh, students at UBC or other universities in the world that are going into the nuclear field. They can see that that's a dead end and there's no there's no future for uh, nuclear science, really, is there? Well, I uh, hate to say it, but there's actually a future and the future is trying to deal with the, uh, uh -huh. the stuff that comes out from the backside, as you put it earlier. Uh, that stuff is going to be around for a long, long time, and we have to develop expertise to deal with that. And likewise, 
uh, in uh, the uh, nuclear fleet as it exists right now, they will all have to go through a process of decommissioning and trying to make sure that the radioactive um, uh, structures that are in the nuclear power plant are dealt with safely. So there's going to be a lot of work in the nuclear field for some decades at this point. Now, unfortunately, these are not very attractive jobs um, but, you know, this is, I think, we should be thinking about these as part of uh, our environmental cleanup work that uh, we have to do in so many parts of the country and the world. And this is uh, in, in the same uh, kind. But this is, I don't think that there is actually uh, a, a case to be made for uh, thinking about operators at nuclear power plants as a growing job sector. <laughs> I was thinking of something else entirely. Well, Professor, we're fast running out of time, but before we go, uh, January 22nd, the UN's TPNW, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, goes into effect. Uh, this country, Canada, to its shame, is not a signatory to that. Uh, maybe we will be in the future, but the current government shows no inclination in that direction. I, I wonder, Professor, if uh, can these small uh, nuclear reactors can their byproducts be utilized for weaponization? Yes. Uh, all nuclear power plants uh, you, uh, run on uranium, uh, or some. there are a few of them designs which are supposed to be using thorium, but uh, the use of thorium will also result in the production of something called uranium-233, uh, and uh, most of these reactors will also produce plutonium. And all of these materials can be used to make nuclear weapons. Uh, and there is no way to actually break that connection. So if you are going to think about an expansion of nuclear power, you are going to increase the probability, uh, the possibility that some of these materials can be used for making nuclear uh, weapons. And in that sense, there's, you know, an expansion of nuclear energy is against the spirit of the TPNW. And I think many of the people who fought for uh, the ban treaty would definitely agree that, you know, there should not be a place for nuclear energy in the future energy system. The man is Professor M.V. Ramana. His article is Why the Liberals' Nuclear Power Plant is a Pipe Dream. I found it at nuclear-news.net, where there's a lot of like material about this industry, and you can find it there, too. I thank you, uh, Professor, for coming on the show today and telling us about this. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure, and thank you for all the great questions. Thanks to Chris Cook of Guerrilla Radio for that interview. He is at CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, operating on the unceded, unsurrendered territories of the Wasenek and Lekwungen peoples. Look up, join us next week for a special broadcast dedicated to freedom at last for America's most famous political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Metis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.